She plunges her head in and he can feel her body going stiff. He plunges his head under the water too, unprepared for what he sees and how it makes him feel, for the sight and the emotion don't match. Under the water, there are long violet finger anemones and wide orange fans of lace and snubby yellow brains and fields of lush red waving hair and shoals of yellow and silver striped surgeant majors. And right below him, snuggled together, he spots a crowd of neon fish, blue tangs, together against the red waving hair. They are slim, oval-shaped fish with indigo bodies, but their dorsal and tail fins are iridescent blue. Together they look like a section of a carnival band as they move together in a harmonious water dance, part of something, but uniquely startling to the eye. A feeling close to grief washes over him. He is humbled and sad, full of joy. He could sob into his goggles. That was an excerpt from Archipelago by Monique Rofi, read by Ashley Gunsteins. And this is Novel Climate, a podcast about literature, the environment, and people. I'm Megan Modafferi. I'm a graduate student interested in the stories we tell about climate change. Each episode looks at a specific novel that I think does something different with climate fiction and tells us something new about environmental issues in the real world. If you missed episode one, I encourage you to go back either before or after you listen to this one. The first episode explains the ideas underlying this whole project It goes into the history of environmental literature, I talk with an environmental justice reporter, and basically it starts to unpack the stories we are all already consuming about climate change in movies and other media. So I hope you'll check it out. The earliest well-known sea adventure story is Homer's Odyssey, which is thought to have been written in around 800 BC, though the details around exactly when and who are somewhat mysterious. Some scholars think it was composed over time by communities of people rather than a single individual. Regardless, the tradition of the seafaring tale continues on, though it has changed over time. Literary scholar Margaret Cohen has observed that where Odysseus's seamanship occurred in the context of gods and the sacred, seafaring tales from the early 20th century take place in what she calls a disenchanted cosmos. The heroes of these stories, in other words, brave the unknowns of human experience without any hint of divine authority or help. Instead, what is celebrated in these stories is the power of human agency alone. But in an era when human activity has left its mark throughout Earth systems, an epoch sometimes called the Anthropocene, the question of human agency is a fraught one. The Anthropos in Anthropocene refers to the broadest conception of us, to humans at the species level. But as historian Deepesh Chakrabarty has observed, we don't tend to experience ourselves as a species. We can infer it, he says, like a concept, but we don't live at that zoomed out of a level. And on top of that, what do we make of species-level human agency when we consider that those countries and groups least responsible for climate change tend to be the ones most burdened by its fallout. So on one hand, the Anthropocene concept suggests that humans as a species, or at least a wealthy subset of humans, have attained godlike status, able to dramatically shift Earth, atmosphere, air, and water systems for millennia to come. Human agency has replaced Odysseus's gods. 
But in another way, the lines between what we have done through our own agency and what nature has done have never been more blurred. For example, we know that sea level rise and an increase in both the frequency and severity of hurricanes can be tied to human activity. But in the words of environmental humanities scholar Elizabeth Lowry, the ocean seems to be our proxy. It is human agency merged with the agency of the ocean and the interconnected systems within and around it that erode coastlines and ravage communities with unprecedented storms. This isn't to blame the ocean, of course, but to think about the ways we are inseparable from it. We are a part of ecological systems ourselves. We didn't always have to bend over backwards to think of ourselves as part of nature. In fact, the phrase the environment, in the sense that it describes the natural world minus humans, this usage didn't come into being until 1948. Alan McDuffie, a scholar in environmental literature and science studies, has traced the history of the word, and he found it first appeared bearing any semblance to the modern usage in 1828. But it meant then, and I'm quoting him here, not merely surroundings or context, but rather the vital, ongoing influence of those surroundings upon a person or thing. In other words, the word environment was an ecological concept, a way of thinking about how networks of relations, both human and not, influence one another. It wasn't until later that we got into the habit of seeing the environment as what philosopher Bruno Latour calls a backdrop for human activity, rather than a series of forces that are co-constitutive with it. So I say all of this to lay a foundation for the things I'm grappling with as I think about our novel for this episode, Archipelago, by the Trinidadian author Monique Rofi. I'm thinking about how we stopped seeing ourselves as part of an ecosystem that we depend on for our very survival, and started thinking of the components of that ecosystem as only resources to be harvested for capital. I'm wondering, what do we owe to one another as we all set sail on climate change seas? And how can we imagine ourselves more accurately as interconnected rather than individual sailors? Rofi's novel is an unusual take, I think, on a seafaring story. It doesn't imagine an individual hero who triumphs because of the strength of his agency or because of divine help. Instead, it's about a family, traumatized by an experience with nature that inspires them to go on a journey at sea, where they grapple with living in a climate-changed world. I think it's a novel that's that's really asking what if our archetypes of a sea story weren't about like a single human chasing a white whale and dragging everyone along with him? What if it were about a family sort of muddling through their responsibilities to each other in a world that looks the same as it did before climate change happened, but is subtly so different that their old frames of reference no longer really apply. What drew me to it was the way that it wasn't dealing with the climate crisis as a a future threat, but it was detailing the way the climate, that people were living the climate crisis. That was Ali Glassy and Parker Krieg, two professors who work in the environmental humanities and have written about this novel. Here's Parker again. The novel, if I could summarize it, is about uh, essentially a a family whose lives are upended uh, by a tropical storm. Their house is destroyed, and it really tells the story of a father, a daughter, 
and a dog who take off on a, on a boat trip to kind of repair this, the meaning that's been lost from their lives. And, and they go on this trip to uh, the Galapagos Islands. And, and as they're traveling to the Galapagos Islands, they, they revisit the environmental history of all of these different islands, uh, which is anthropogenic history. It's a colonial history. A colonial history defined by the introduction of species, the forced movements of people, uh, the forced labor. I want to jump in here to say that there will be spoilers in this episode, but I don't think it's the kind of book where spoilers ruin the experience. The novel is much more about living with the characters, thinking about how to process grief and find joy and meaning in the Anthropocene, and less about being surprised by specific moments in the plot. I think, and I hope, that whether you listen to this podcast before or after you read the novel, it will add to, rather than take away from your experience of the work. That said, you've been warned. And there are two other characters that are, I think, present, but not with the characters who are on the boat. And that's Claire, the wife, who, uh, you know, her response to the trauma of, of losing the house is to kind of go into a catatonic state. And, uh, and so it's unclear for quite a bit of the novel whether or not Claire is actually alive or dead. They speak about her in the past tense. And then it's not until page 100 that uh, you find out that they, the family lost a, a baby. And it was, uh, they had a son who died in the flood. And they're unable, really, the, the narration which tells the story through the main character, Gavin, the father of the family. He's unable to even think about the loss uh, of his child. And so his own thoughts, his own, well, the ways that he, his own thoughts kind of circle back to that moment, they always sort of neglect or circle around this, this gap, which is the, the, you know, the loss of, of his child. And then, and then it's his daughter who really brings it up. And so to me, that's a very interesting way of narrating trauma, narrating histories that we can't easily talk about, and to understand that that you know that humans in general, uh, we can be affected by things that we don't necessarily understand or can talk about. There's this other scholar in the environmental humanities named Rob Nixon, who coined the term slow violence to describe environmental change that happens so slowly over centuries in some cases, that it's difficult to talk about, to notice, or even to conceptualize. Things like the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere, some of which dates back to the 19th century and earlier, or the effects of lingering radiation from nuclear weapons testing on human health across generations. None of these fit our typical storylines, where usually a single actor does something that creates an immediate reaction. You know, Ferris Bueller skips school, so Principal Rooney chases him. Instead, both the causes and the effects of environmental degradation are dispersed, through time and space. Those responsible for fossilized carbon in the atmosphere range from the Victorians, who popularized the steam engine, to contemporary multinational companies, to individuals gassing up their cars, all to varying degrees, of course. And the effects are the same way, different in different places and different times and hard to tie back to all those initial causes. And that makes them hard to tell stories about, which matters because stories tend to be the way we make meaning and it's hard to take action without them. So this novel is set in the Caribbean, a region that in real life is simultaneously unusually vulnerable to climate change and not at all a major cause of it in terms of emissions. The region is estimated to be responsible for less than 1% of total global emissions. And yet. Climate has already changed in the Caribbean region. 
And part of the work, the science work we do, is to characterize that change. If we look on temperatures and you look on the historical record, you cannot miss, you know, we have had this steady increase in temperatures. You know, and then you can look on all the other things, the variability of rainfall, you know, and how we are always in one extreme or the other now. You can look at sea level rise, <laughs> you know, and you can see, for us, the practical outworking of that is on, on almost every Caribbean island, they can point to a location where they can say, you know, this used to be, or, you know, somewhere in the sea and say that used to be on the land. That was Michael A. Taylor, a climate scientist from Jamaica, and that's part of why I think it's important to talk about this novel, which takes us into this important region and takes us out of an American or European-centric view of the problem. And what I love about this novel in particular is that it uses the form of the archipelago, of the island-hopping adventure story, to knit together different places and different times as being within a single story, or a single history, really. So there's this personal family trauma at the center that's their own encounter with a piece of climate change, the flood. But then at different moments, at different places in their journey, they encounter broader environmental destruction, things like the loss of coral reefs and the impacts of invasive species on ecosystems. And they encounter relics of colonial histories. In other words, natural and human histories get told together, which doesn't always happen, and I think we lose out on understanding because of it. So, for example, when the family sails to Bonaire, they encounter tiny pink huts where enslaved people used to live and harvest salt. So Curacao was conquered by the Dutch, taken away from the Spanish in 1634, and Bonaire in 1636. And from there on, Bonaire was kind of this, it was a, a plantation, let's say, in a way, of Curacao. It was really sparsely populated. It was mainly used for cattle and sheep and goat ranching and for salt. On the southern end of Bonaire, there's these huge natural salt lagoons, these marshes and wetlands, and they were modified early on. So beginning in the 1630s, 1640s, the Dutch started to modify them to build dikes and to build um, small infrastructure to produce salt. And from that time onwards, it seems that the, the enslaved who would be punished on Curacao, the, those who were maybe rebellious, many of them would be as a punishment, they'd be sent to Bonaire to work on the salt pans. And uh, salt cultivation, as I call it, in these conditions in, in, in the West Indian sun, where you don't have any shelter, would have really been very, very hard work. It would have been grueling. Yeah, so salt, I mean, it's even even before that time, I mean, it's been, it's been essential. I mean, uh, salt has been always a really sought-after preservative for food. Now we think of it more as, a, um, as something we add to food to give it more flavor, to enhance, a flavor enhancer. Um, but it's always been used as a preservative, before refrigeration especially. So salt, um, with, uh, with the exploration, let's say, European exploration of, of the world and, and subsequent colonialism, salt played a major role in this, in, in, Euro in European expansion, because salt made it possible for mariners to traverse the sea on, on these long-distance voyages. That was archaeologist Conrad Antchak explaining the real-world significance of these huts. And with this example, the novel alludes to connections between the history of environmental change and the histories of slavery and colonialism. In fact, some people prefer the term Plantationocene to Anthropocene, precisely because it emphasizes these connections. The idea of the Anthropocene is 
you know, that there's a man-made impact on, on the world's climate, which some people call the period of great, you know, acceleration since about the, the 1950s or 60s. Other people date it to earlier, depending on how you want to understand whether it's just part of industrialization and fossil fuel consumption that's led to global warming. And some people talk about the idea of the plantationocene, right, that our whole modern economy grew out of the plantation economy, which began moving people around the world and exploiting nature and exploiting labor in ways that led to industrialization and then the, the inequalities in the world today. That was sociologist Mimi Scheller. We'll hear more from her in a bit. But so at the same time as the novel's pointing backwards in history with this inclusion, it's creating resonances in the present day with this family's experience. Here's literary scholar Parker again, talking about the role of this visit in the novel. When they come across the ruins of, quote, the the infamous slave huts of Bonaire, their pink color stands out uh, to the characters, uh, in particular to the daughter, Ocean, who draws parallel between these small huts and their own house, which was also pink. And so you have this juxtaposition of pink huts, pink houses that Gavin's daughter is excited about. But after hearing the history, she says it feels funny in here. It feels like mummy. And so so I read this as an instance where the material remains of the slave huts expose a kind of shared vulnerability of domestic space. So we have this moment of a real stark comparison in privilege. Gavin's family experienced a tragedy and was able to basically run from it, to set off on this adventure at sea as a way of coping. And some scholars are focusing on this freedom of movement as being a crucial piece to the environmental justice story. Here's Mimi, the sociologist, again. Well, I wrote a book called Mobility Justice, which is about the ways in which how people move in the world is full of power relations and inequalities. And... You know, if you think about, um, I mean, the most basic origin is I originally I worked on slavery and emancipation. And if you think about slavery, it's taking away somebody's freedom of mobility, of movement. And emancipation is a return of the, the right to move, the freedom to move, to leave enslavement. And so that's like a very simple beginning point to think about how mobility is a power relation that some people control other people's movement. But then I also take it out to a broader scale to think about things like borders and migration and who is allowed to move around the world and who is not. And that's where it's an issue of mobility justice when we say our overconsumption of energy and fossil fuel caused global warming. Other people have had their whole life disrupted by climate disasters, even though they contributed little to it. And the question becomes, do they have a right to move if where they live is no longer habitable? If climate change is driving ecological disruption and the collapse of food systems through droughts and hurricanes and fires, don't we who caused it have a moral obligation to help and welcome those people to be able to move to somewhere more livable, or also to pay what I call a climate debt 
Do we owe a climate debt to help other places with climate adaptation and building greater resilience so they can stay where they, where they are? So in the book, we see that Gavin's family has relative privilege in terms of mobility. But we also see that that doesn't save them from the consequences of environmental destruction. They still lose a child, a brother. And so we have to hold both of these ideas in our head at once. That climate consequences are experienced along lines of social inequity. And that even those with social privilege are and will be made vulnerable to climate change. So if we imagine ourselves as being in a privileged category, safe from climate change, we don't only defer action that would protect more vulnerable groups. We also delude ourselves into thinking the consequences won't come for us, too. Here's Allie Glassy again, talking about some of the ways privilege is represented in this novel. One of the things that this novel is, this novel uses the sea story and the, the cruise track to do is kind of bring the readers into contact with different experiences of, of climate change in the Caribbean, but also the sort of the ways that Caribbean histories manifest in the present, right? So in one of the early chapters, Gavin and his daughter and the dog go ashore and they come back and there's a guy rifling through the boat. He's taken his pirogue, which is a, a traditional vessel that has design lineage from indigenous dugouts. He's taken it out to their little yacht and he's like rifling through the cabin. And there's this standoff between them. And it is a standoff in many ways, right, between really between a lot of privilege and real destitution, right? So, so these characters are brought into to sort of conflict with each other in order, I think, to show the readers that the complexity and the disparity that exists, not just on the sort of world stage when we think about climate change, but like within the same community. There are so many interesting ways the novel asks us to think about class and race, both within communities and in pointing to how power and privilege operate on an international scale. One of these is embodied in the sort of shifting race and class markers of the main character. Rofi gives us a, a character, a narrator, who experiences his racialization in different environments differently. When Gavin's neighborhood is destroyed, the news coverage comes to him because he's uh, middle, middle class. He lives in the neighborhood. He doesn't live in hills where many more people's houses are, are destroyed. And he's classified as white. He sees himself as white in relation to the, those people who live in the hills who do not receive news coverage. But when he's out in the world, he feels a certain self-consciousness because his skin is much darker than his daughter's. And so... What is, you know, a, a normal mixed race family becomes somehow suspicious when he's out in the world in these different contexts. And I think she's giving us a new class of environmental subjects. So, for instance, when you think about skin, skin becomes in the novel, certainly it exists as a marker of racial difference, but skin for Gavin. He, he suffers from stress-induced psoriasis. His skin is literally sloughing off from him. And, and this is a result of the flood. And so what is this relationship to society on the basis of skin? What is this now that is defined by this environmental trauma in a different way? And so that's one of the ways that Rofi, I think, deals with race that emphasizes its constructedness and the, the real social consequences the novel also asks us to consider questions of difference and responsibility to other species. 
Here's Allie again, talking about a scene involving the family dog. So their dog chases a seabird and gets um, fouled up in the lifelines and then ultimately goes overboard. And Gavin, who at that point have, like does not have any other adults aboard, like he can't save her. And there's a moment in the novel where he sort of refuses. He, he's like, maybe I should harness her up, but he doesn't do it. And I think that moment, which is a really, really painful moment in the novel where the dog is like, like her back is broken. She's trying to swim toward them and she just can't and their eyes are locked as she drowns. The novel is really using that moment to say, I mean, it sounds a little cheesy, right? But it's saying like, okay, like we're all shipmates here. What does that mean? What do we owe to each other, right? What do we as, like if if this family on this boat is meant to be a microcosm of of all of us who are in this web of relationality on planet Earth, who, like, where is the responsibility falling? Like, who owes what? I mean, it, I, th- I don't think it's an accident that this novel is captained by a grieving father and crewed by a child, a dog, and a ghost, right? Like, child is future generations, dogs, other species, the ghost is the ghost of the past, right? And the way that that past is always present. And there's one more, I think, really important cultural context to apply when thinking about this novel. I mean, there's dozens more. I could go on forever, but there's one more for the sake of this episode. And that's the history and cultural significance of the Trinidadian Carnival. Take a listen to this excerpt from the last couple of pages in the novel. It is 4 a.m. in St. James when the rain falls down from the sky. Thousands of people in the band, most daubed with cocoa mixture, mud, or paint, many now well past the point of remembering their own names. People in a state of intoxication, jubilation. This is Dirty Mass, Dark Mass, the opening to Trinidad's yearly festival, which celebrates the fight of the flesh. This is Juve, Jour Ouvert, the opening of the day, of carnival, two days of celebration, and he is black, slick with mud and paint and wearing a cowboy hat with winking lights. There's a pouch of rum slung round his neck. He is Bacchus. He is Dionysus. He is a drunken sailor man, a wild man, a lover man. He is home, back. A person from this particular island, lush and green and fertile, Trinidad. The end link in the chain of this long and dazzling archipelago. They all are, these Trinidadians. A people living at the end of the chain, only six miles from the mainland of South America, spitting distance from the coast. A small island with the same mountains. So after I read this, I called up Giuseppe Sofo, a cultural scholar and expert on Trinidadian carnival, to ask what's taking place in the scene? What is the significance of the ritual references called Juve? It's one of the most powerful rituals. The way it's performed is very simple. People are just in the streets, parading, dancing like they would be on Carnival Monday and Tuesday. But there are no boundaries. And it takes the forms of an Indian celebration, which is holy, Um, in which people just throw colors at each other and mud at each other. And the idea behind it, and there's there's a writer who just passed away from Trinidad, Tony Hall, who who worked a lot on Juve and expressed it with with beautiful words, is that the community is shaping you. So the community is giving you your colors. The community is giving the colors you are supposed to wear. And they are shaping you and you are letting them shape yourself. And at the same time, you are shaping yourself 
with the colors you take along the road and with the colors you give others. So the, the idea is really that of a community that meets itself and as individuals that meet other individuals, but especially individuals that meet a community and a community that meets individuals. So where does this leave us? I mean, first, it makes me think back to what we traditionally expected from sea adventure stories. This very individualistic, very sort of swashbuckling adventure story. And compare it to this carnival practice, which really embodies the older usage of the term environment by highlighting how our surroundings, both natural and human, shape us and are shaped by us. And I want to let Parker take us a few lines further into the scene. The the figure that repeats in the novel that I kept coming back to is the figure of the brown wave. The brown wave is that which wipes through his house, wipes through the town, his neighborhood, and it, it, it throws everything into disarray. And so by by the end, the, the environment, this environmental figure that destroys his relations to family, community, and the natural world returns as an embodiment of his reconciliation. In the in the novel's final passages, the brown wave is transfigured into lines of carnival celebrants. I think in a very interesting way. If I could if I could quote the the rain dances down from the night sky and turns every person into a slippery wet brown statue. So he in in a sense in this in this moment he becomes he becomes the brown wave. And so it's his literal and figural reconciliation with this thing that destroyed his family, that made him feel separate and alienated from the things that brought him joy. There are so many different ways to tell this climate story, these climate stories. There's the apocalyptic framing. You are going to lose London, parts of New York, Boston, parts of Washington. There's denial and minimization. So, John, you're seeing this everywhere, everywhere. We have bad hurricanes, unprecedented hurricane season because of climate change. Is that true? No. There's techno-utopias, where we engineer ourselves out of this mess without necessarily having to fundamentally change the way we live. This man has a vision to create the best electric cars ever seen and consign gasoline to history. And then there's the opposite. We do have the opportunity to get off that road, but in order to do so, we have to change pretty much everything or some really fundamental things about our economic system. And then, I don't know, there's Archipelago. I think, ultimately, it leaves us in a place of hope. Not that everything is fine, but that maybe there's room for joy and resilience in accepting our connectedness with others and with the natural world even, and especially, as we prepare for and grieve and mitigate the consequences of climate change. And that there's power, the kind of power that generates new understandings, in telling these stories, these histories, in new ways. This has been Novel Climate, Episode 2. I hope you read Archipelago by Monique Rofi. It's a gorgeous novel that is both packed with things to think about and just a really enjoyable read. Big thanks to our narrator, Ashley Gunsteins, and our guests, Parker Krieg, Allie Glassy, Conrad Anchak, Giuseppe Sofo, Mimi Scheller, and Michael Taylor. I'm Megan Modafferi. <laughs>